0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'll read from verse 12 down to 22. Even though we'll only be in one verse today, I think it's good to have the context here. So, verse 12 says this, But we ask of you, brothers, that you know those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus." Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but examine all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Our God, we pray that you would now give us a ability that we lack in ourselves, an ability to see the glory of the truth before us. We pray for focus, that you would enable us, even mentally and our circumstances, even in this room, to be such that we can focus on your word, that we can get something here that helps us in our in our walk with Christ, in our obedience to you. Uh, we pray that you would make the church what what it can be. Uh, that you would grant it to grow in health uh, and in number for your glory. Teach us to be effective ministers. Uh, in each other's lives, uh, teach us to be more, uh, to be wise, and to be to be willing to <clears throat> get involved in each other's lives, as this passage presents to us. And we pray all this in Christ's name, Amen. So, this section in First Thessalonians is a very pithy summary of a healthy church, and so that's a common phrase you'll hear among Christians, especially more conservative Christians that want to, they want to attend a faithful church. You hear them saying things like, well, this is not a very solid church, or this is a, yeah, it's a real healthy church. There's this and this and this, and they point to different things as signs of that. And so this is a, a biblical description of what a healthy church is. Uh, it's a very pithy summary, a very succinct summary of what the church is meant to be. In verses 12 to 22. And it's so compressed, many people think this section is really compressed because Paul had likely elaborated on these points when he was in Thessalonica with these Christians. And so that's my excuse for kind of expanding a bit on each one instead of just taking them all in one message and just just going through them in rapid fire like that without getting into them. I think it's, it's worth it to us as a new church to really dive in and see uh, these major points and see what that looks like. What would that look like for a church to actually be this way in Orland in the 21st century? Okay, not in Thessalonica, in the Greco-Roman world in the first century. But what would that look like for us? And so last week, you remember, we we spoke about this, the first concern in this passage, which is the relationship between people in a church and the leaders and the leadership of a church. And that's that's really a, a priority in a healthy church when there's fract- when there's divisions, when there's hostility, uh, suspicion, resentment between people and the spiritual leaders of a church or when you've lost confidence in your spiritual leaders. Uh, that's game o- it's game over. Okay, it's game over. And so Paul exhorts the Christians. He exhorted them and, and we exhorted each other last week uh, to really cultivate healthy attitudes toward leadership in the church. Uh, but then second here is now we're, we're moving from the, the relationship between leaders, the elders and the pastors and the, the officers, you might say, in the church and the people. Now we're moving more towards the, the congregation's relationship with itself. And so how Christians are to interact with each other. And if you've been to a church before, been burned by a church, you, you probably have a lot of thoughts that come to mind on problems that can occur within the people of a church? Well, well, someone, they insulted me. Uh, once here, uh, I once hear, I heard of a lady that visited a church after a long time not going, and the pastor said to her husband, well, 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 look what the cat dragged in. <laughs> That's quite a thing to hear, quite a welcome to church. Um, and so there's all these ways we could be tempted to resent each other or, or even neglect each other is even a bigger danger sometimes, uh, not being necessarily harsh with each other, uh, not being uh, too severe with each other, but just, just kind of being standoffish, just getting being disconnected from each other. And so this passage here in verse 14 will really help us with that. <coughs> it will help us with that. And the the main argument, the thing I want to persuade you of today is that you actually have the resources to significantly help other people in this church, okay? And that's a, that's a common thing for Christians to be worried about. Oh, no, you know, I've only been a Christian for a couple weeks, couple months, couple years. You know, I'm kind of, I'm not, re- I'm not there yet. I'm not ready to, to get involved or, or to, to speak to someone. Um, and there could be some truth to that. Maybe there is a short season where you, you know, you need to learn um, the gospel to you still isn't that clear. You're still learning the basics of the faith. Okay, so we can, we can allow for that. Um, but most Christians, I would argue, and this passage would argue, are equipped to help each other in the faith. And this passage assumes a number of things. If you just look at it, we urge you brothers. Okay, so he's, he's not talking to me primarily as the, the preacher or pastor. He's talking to the people in the church. Right, the same people he was addressing in verse 12. We ask of you brothers. In other words, brothers and sisters, the whole congregation. He's addressing the whole congregation. We urge you to do these things. right, Admonish the unruly. okay, Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. And so he expects the people of the church to be speaking into each other's lives regularly. Part of why I think many of us are hesitant, diffident, um, timid to get involved is we have been trained by our culture to, to have this professional mentality when problems, when there's big problems, right? So in other words, if, if someone is mildly sad, okay, I, give me that person, I can help them, right? I can spend some time with them, eat a meal with them, encourage them, but oh man, if someone is suicidal, if someone is struggling with some sort of disorder, if they have some sort of label on them, uh, or if they're on medications of various kinds, oh man, count me out. Uh, someone else needs to handle those things. But it wasn't always like that. There was a time when the Bible was considered to be the most applicable and comprehensive book to address the human condition. Okay, there was a time of the Puritan era. Some of you may have heard of those guys, the Puritans in the 17th century. They wrote books uh, with very surprising titles, like a lot of things that would compete with self-help literature today. One book was called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. So instead of of helping people to to get more for themselves and realize their dreams, like a lot of self-help literature today, Uh, The Puritans would counsel people, oh, you're you're restless. Let me teach you about the jewel of Christian contentment. Or another Puritan wrote a book called Keeping the Heart in Various Stages of Life. In other words, your heart is prone to to wander away, to be disordered, uh, fearful, discouraged, uh, hardened toward God. Here's all this counsel from Scripture on how to handle that condition. Or again, How to Triumph Over Sinful Fear, another book one of those men wrote. Or another, A Lifting Up for the Downcast Soul. In other words, here's some help with depression, what we would call depression today. Here's all of what scripture says about that condition of depression. But a a movement came about, as many of you know, in the 19th century, the psychology movement, which really professionalized these problems. Okay, so men like Sigmund Freud and others who were atheistic, they wanted to develop a competing, a competing system with the church. So they didn't see the Bible as sufficient. They saw this as, this is just an old book. It's interesting. This is interesting. But man, our problems are much deeper than, than fairy tales and then Bible verses and things like that. So they actually wanted to create a, a class of secular Uh, pastors. They actually used that terminology, secular pastoral workers, to help people. And they created all sorts of different, um, different approaches and and ways to diagnose people and treat people. And all these labels came out of that. And a lot of those we still have today. Okay, you can pick up a DSM-5 manual. I'm not sure if they're on six yet, but that's the psychology book, right? And there's all these labels and then you have friends that come to you and they say, well, I have all these things. The doctor told me I have all this stuff and I'm on all these meds. And you just think, what's your reaction to that? I mean, we all have these friends, right? What's our reaction? Oh, man, like maybe you can talk to my pastor or talk to some, someone else or maybe one of these famous Christian preachers or something, but I'm like, I don't have anything for you. That's like way out of my league. <laughs> what could I tell you? To help you, so it was professionalized. But a man named Jay Adams recognized this, and he was he was learning all this. He wanted to help people, and he was a Christian. And when he was in college, he he realized, man, the Bible. He started to rediscover some of these things. The Bible really applies so much to all these psychological issues and diagnoses and treatments. It seems like there's been a a a uh, overlapping and a robbing. From how comprehensive the Bible really is by the secular disciplines, and so he started what we now call this, the biblical counseling movement. And some of you were at a conference this weekend at uh, at North Creek down south, and that's that's part of that. Right? Jay Adams was really one of the catalysts of that movement, and he called the church, "Hey, the Bible is really such a powerful book. This is not just you know ten steps to get to heaven." I mean, that is the big good news of Scripture, right? That we can have eternal life through Christ. But the Bible actually addresses our problems here, okay? We're not just waiting around to die and go to heaven. We actually have this book that's sufficient to handle our deepest problems in life. And so he started this movement. And yet many, many churches are still resistant to this. And, and there's a lot of confusion in the churches. And so a lot of good men, a lot of good pastors even... Uh, good intentioned at least are are stuck there. they hear this group over here saying the Bible is sufficient The Bible is everything and then these people over here Ridiculing scripture ridiculing that people that talk like that and then there's people there's all these people in the middle that makes it even more confusing that say like yeah a little of this and a little of that Let's put it on the blender and and that will be the best approach right and so you have various program 12-step programs that are that seem good on the surface there's all this scripture and they're based they claim to be based on the bible but when you get into it it's kind of the same basic stuff that you would get out there right like you have low self esteem that's the issue and and things like that and we can we can discuss that in more detail at a future time but my point in the introduction here is just to to call us to really consider how, much, how many resources you have to help people. And I would say however weak or however new believer you are, okay, you are probably better equipped than you realize to help someone. Okay, even someone with a quote-unquote serious problem. And I want to prove that to you from the passage here. And, and this passage gives us four directions to effectively counsel each other. Okay, this is just a duty that's assumed Uh, it's assumed that the Christian has this duty. It says in verse 14, we urge you, brothers. I guess some people need to be urged, right, to do this. We urge you, we exhort you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. The first thing we can observe from that passage is that we're not all the same. Okay, that seems obvious, but we are not all in the same spiritual condition, are we? I mean, some of us are, are more mature believers, some of us are newer believers, some of us are prone to be sad too much, some of us are prone to be rebellious too much, some of us are prone to just be irritating, right? We don't really see our faults, and we uh, we just kind of get on the nerves of, of some people and test their patience, right? It says be patient with everyone, implying some people in the church will be like that. Some of us are just weak. We just need help. I mean, we're not we're not this real strong. Do anything, kind of person. I mean, I need people around me to help me, and so that's important. As we think about how to help each other, how to counsel each other, we want to acknowledge that that we're not all the same, and we need some measure of God's wisdom to identify, you know, what condition our neighbor is in. And the first instruction he gives here is admonish the unruly. It's kind of a surprising thing. You'd think he would just say. We'll just be nice to everyone and encourage them and and remind them of God's promises and all that. But no, actually the first instruction is regarding what he calls the unruly people. The unruly people. The English word unruly or rebellious, it calls to mind just a rebellious person, someone that won't be ruled by anyone, right? Any kind of authority around them, they just chafe against it. They push back against it instinctively. But... In the context here of First and Second Thessalonians, um, I think it's a little bit more specific. And so remember in, verse, uh, in chapter 4, if you remember uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about brotherly love, right? Do you remember that? Brotherly love and the connection to work. That your work is actually more connected to your love of your neighbor than you may, than you may think, okay? And he said there, you are excelling in brotherly love, but we want you to grow even more. And he, he's he hinted there that there are some people in the church that, while they're very kind, they're very generous and hospitable and, and all of that, they are kind of dependent. They're more dependent on other people than they really should be because they are not, they're not working. They're not being productive, leading productive lives. But he's just gently addressing that subject there. But if you were to flip to 2 Thessalonians, and you can just flip one or two pages over. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. So he's writing to the same group of people. It's Second Thessalonians now. He uses this same word unruly a few times in this section. In verse 6 there, he says, we command you, so no longer urging, commanding in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from every brother who walks in an unruly manner. That's pretty severe. Keep away from them? from the unruly person. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we did not act in an unruly manner among you. Uh, How is that? Well, we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the authority, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would imitate us. For even when we were with you, we used to command this to you: If anyone is not willing to work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are walking in an unruly manner. Okay, that word again: unruly manner, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Okay, and he goes on a little bit more there, but we can come back to First Thessalonians five. The point there is just, I want you to see the, the theme and the connection. It's really a rebellious attitude, but more toward the obligation of work. Okay, so it's not just rebellion uh, against church leadership or, or authorities in the workplace or society, but uh, rebellion spe- more specifically about this obligation of working and providing for yourself. And you may notice that, that people that tend to shirk work and uh, tend to be aloof and and hesitant to work, they tend to also be rebellious, okay? They kind of go together. right? you might have a young person uh, that lives with their parents for for a while, right? And they'll just stretch that generosity as far as it'll go. And also be a little resistant to any kind of attempts to exercise authority uh, as they're living there. But those are just some examples. And so I think that's who he's talking about here. What how should we respond to those people? That's kind of sobering, right? Okay, at some point there will be this will happen here. There'll be someone that is unruly. There'll be someone that is you know, they're real happy that you're so nice, you're so kind and generous with them, but at some point that may turn into unruliness. How should we respond to such a person? Well, I think as a first step, we it's not a airstrike, okay? It's not a lightning bolt approach as step one. So if you're listening to me saying this, don't think that I'm saying, oh, if you just catch the slightest whiff of an unruly spirit, you just, you know, just explode, drop a bomb. Some people are like that, okay? Some people, they out of zeal, a misplaced zeal, you know, they think they're being zealous for the Lord. They think they're being helpful and and they're real proud of their, of their, uh, their cour- their courageous spirit in confronting people. But sometimes we can go too far, and it's usually best to just start like the Apostle Paul started. Oh, maybe Timothy came and brought him a report of people. Well, how did Paul first respond to this this problem? He just said, "Well, you are you're doing great. Hey, but here's a way you could excel more. Right? So you begin with instruction. Oh, hey, have you considered this? Maybe." you know, you should get a job, or maybe you should do this or that. Um, you know, if you did this, you'd be enabled to actually serve other people and help other people. And then, okay, maybe step two, that's not going anywhere. Give it some time to, to for them to think about. Um, you can be a little more direct, a little more firm, right? An admonishment. Remember, we defined that word last week, and it's a um, it's a warning. It's a... Uh, it doesn't have to be a severe warning, could be, but it could also be gentle. that you're warning them, you're, you're pointing out a fault at the end of the day. It is pointing out a fault and calling someone to to change an area of their life. But as we read in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, it can't be tolerated. okay? And that, that might be where this will be new to you. Um, a lot of people want to be in a healthy church. We want to be in a healthy church that's functioning, right, according to scripture. But when a healthy church actually starts functioning in a healthy way, they seem like a family would be, a healthy family has the idea of discipline in it, okay? When people go off the rails, get out of line, I mean, the healthy family doesn't just say, well, whatever. I mean, we just love little Johnny so much, we'll just let him run away and get in trouble with the police and all this stuff because we love him so much. No, a healthy family We'll we'll call people to be accountable for their actions. And so this is what we are called to do. We're called not to tolerate this attitude. Okay, we start gentle, but we need to be, and you personally and just collectively, we need to be willing to say, right, what the Apostle Paul said. I mean, in extreme cases, the church is called to actually shun, okay, shun, someone that refuses to work and provide for themselves, and take advantage of other people. And the my biggest concern in this is the the husband, okay? Because occasionally this does happen where a husband will not provide for his family. I mean, I heard of a, a case where a man, he, he sent his wife to work. His wife had to get two or three jobs. Well, where was he? Well, he was walking his dog. I mean, he didn't want to work. It was hard. Okay, he didn't want to work. He wanted to walk the dog and and relax and watch TV and all this stuff. I mean, we're, we won't tolerate that here, you know? We won't tolerate that here. We won't tolerate the deadbeat husband, not because we hate him. We love him, okay? And that's, I would encourage you to think about that love. How is love connected to this, what I'm talking about? Uh, we are maybe even as I'm talking about this and talking about you trying to minister to someone that's unruly, you may be getting sweaty hands and think, oh man, how could I do that? I'm such a sweet person. I'm more of like the sweetheart in the church. I can't say things like that to people. Um, Oh, I'm really concerned about your obedience in this area. I'm concerned you're unruly. Well, it's true. You need to love someone to encourage them But I would argue you need to love someone even more to admonish them. Would you agree? And why is that? Because, well, when you encourage someone, you're not risking anything. (laughs) You're just, and if anything, you're doing something to build a relationship. I mean, how would someone respond to your encouragement? They would say, wow, they love me and, you, you know, what a nice gesture they encouraged me. But when you admonish someone, what is that doing? You're sacrificing, aren't you? You're risking something. You're risking that person hating you, resenting you. And it's like the, the 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 mother and the father admonishing their children. Some parents are so, they're so loving, they think they're being loving, by indulging their children. But it's actually a form of self-love, isn't it? Because you want that lo- the love of that child. The thing you most want in that moment, you want their love, right? More than you want their good. And so it needs to be that way among us. And when you, when you see a Christian confronting another believer, um, don't think that's, that's uh, an expression of hatred or pride or, or a legalistic person. That person is, is risking their relationship with that person and their reputation in the church. If that person... You know the person they confront goes around telling everyone oh so and so he he dared to say this to me i can't believe that well we're risking that when we admonish one another but it's a very important responsibility that we have but it's important to say that not every christian is a rebel okay so we have spiritual sicknesses and we have needs we have a need to receive counsel from one another but don't make this mistake of labeling every spiritually needy Christian as a rebel. Okay, we don't all need the admonishment. Sometimes we need, as it says here, encouragement. It says, "Encourage the faint-hearted." The faint heart is very different from an unruly spirit, and also different from just a weak person. The word "faint-hearted" literally means small-souled. Uh, the words in Greek literally mean that a small soul. And this has to do with the, an exhausted condition. This is uh, used to describe a pursuing army. They, they're they pursuing an, another army, but it's been so long since they've eaten anything or, or drank any water that they're become, becoming faint, physically faint from that. This is the exhausted athlete or traveler, maybe a backpacker ready to give up, given for the day, to throw in the towel. And this is a real spiritual condition where some people can be in this state where they just, they have no motivation. All the life, it just drained out of them. They wake up and it's just, they can't imagine the wor- why it would be worth getting out of bed and doing anything that day. There's a burden on them, and it could be from a number of things. But this is the, the discouraged believer, the believer that's really lost sight of uh, God's presence in their life and, and what he's enabled them to do. And I do want to introduce you to just one man in scripture that was like this in one time in, in his life, and that's in 1 Kings 19. The prophet Elijah, uh, one of the great men of history, okay, one of the great prophets of history, Elijah, the prophet Elijah. This is what we read of him. Uh, King Ahab. Told Jezebel, so wicked king, wicked queen, he told Jezebel that Elijah had put to death the false prophets on Mount Carmel. So in the previous chapter, there's this big display where Elijah triumphed over the false prophets of Baal. And it seemed to be this great victory, right? This high point in his life. But then Jezebel threatens his life and basically says, I'm going to kill you as soon as possible. So all of a sudden, Elijah is stricken with fear. So the the guy that was once bold, just a, a few verses before, he is this bold guy on fire for God. How does he respond to the threat? It says, He was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his young man there, so his assistant, he left there and just went by himself into the wilderness for a day. And he came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. I would say this is a faint-hearted believer. And it's interesting that it occurred in a man like that, in Elijah. I mean, if you would say just the word Elijah to a Christian who was well-read in Scripture, that Christian would think, oh man, this fiery, zealous Servant of God, not afraid of anyone. And yet we read this great man, this great prophet, was ready to die. So how did he end up this way? Ready to die, ready to, to, to throw in the towel. He didn't want to do anything else for God. He, was, he felt himself to be a total failure. Right? He was fearful. The faint heart says, my enemies are too powerful to me, for me. No matter what I do, I'm never going to prevail against fill in the blank. Could be a family member, could be uh, some distressing situation at work, could uh, could be a literal enemy. Just my enemies are too powerful for me. There's people against me, and there's nothing I can do to overcome them. The faint heart is also discouraged, right? The faint heart says, I'm a failure, dwells on failure. I failed too many times. I'm useless. I'm really just useless i can't I can't do anything for God God can't use me. I mean I have a history, a proven history of failure, and i'm never going to get past that i'm never going to get past that. The faint heart is also often guilt ridden, and this is the most this is the saddest part of this condition. I think a faint heart is is prone to say perhaps God has finally given up on me i didn't grow it as fast as I should have grown. I didn't do what I should have done. I had all these opportunities. I wasted them. I wasted them. And, and now what? Well, God, he was patient with me, but finally he gave up. He's done. He's done with me. Perhaps he's, he's finally left me. And the, the faint heart, sometimes when it's so severe, will actually long for death. We see Elijah, he prayed for death. He, he knew he couldn't kill himself. He knew that would be a sin, breaking the sixth commandment. But he did what he could do, is he prayed that God would be gracious to him and just end his life. He was done. How should we respond to these people, uh, to the faint-hearted believer? Well, they don't need to be admonished, that's for sure. I mean, <laughs> if you want to just destroy them, go admonish them. Just go rebuke them for their weak faith. Just say, oh, you don't have enough faith. You're this way because God is punishing you for for your small faith. That is the quickest way to totally destroy a person in that condition. But we, we need to encourage them. We need to encourage them. That's what the passage says. And the way a Christian encourages another Christian may surprise you. It may surprise you how a Christian would go about trying to encourage another Christian, another believer to keep going in life. And it would, it's not just to say, well, it's all right. It'll be all right. Just keep going. I mean, there's, there's dark clouds behind you. There's probably good times ahead of you. I mean, that's the best the world can say, can it? I mean, most people live their life with this curtain in front of them right in front of them, and they can't see anything about the other side of the curtain. You just hope. I hope something is going to, it will happen today. I mean, I hope my family will turn out okay. I hope, I hope, I hope. But the Christian actually has a certainty and has a foundation, a solid foundation on which to offer encouragement to other people. And that really begins with the surprising acknowledgement that you deserve to be abandoned by God I mean if we're honest with each other and if I came to you and said I feel God has abandoned me it would be accurate for you to say well you actually do deserve that (laughs) as a sinner you deserve for God to leave you in the outer darkness to to cast you out of his presence you deserve punishment you deserve to be forsaken because of your sin because God is a just judge But God doesn't just console us without any sort of foundation, no. I mean, God is perfect. He's holy, 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 as we sang, and he won't compromise that. But God has actually made a way for us to be fully assured of his presence with us, right? We need to remember God's mercy and the connection to the gospel. And so with a person like this, who is so despondent, so faint-hearted, your your goal is to encourage them in a way that connects the gospel to how they're feeling, okay? To connect the gospel to their thoughts. So they're thinking, God, is, God has left me. I'm useless. I'm a failure. My enemies are too powerful for me. I don't deserve God's help, even if I'm still a believer, which I, I doubt sometimes. I mean, I don't deserve God's help in my life because of what I've done. You need to remind them that the death of Christ is the reason for God's presence with them. That Jesus died for them to secure God's presence with them. And so a believer can say in every season, God is with me. And it's not because of me. It's because of Christ. Because Christ took our sin upon himself and died on the cross. And so we would never be abandoned. And this is why the consistent counsel from God to this kind of person in the Bible is the same throughout. God says the same encouraging words throughout the whole Bible. Let me just survey a couple times when God had to encourage people like this in the Bible. He said to Isaac, do not fear, for I am with you. Okay, that's the reason. Why shouldn't you be afraid? Why shouldn't you be discouraged? I'm with you. I promise to be with you, Isaac. Or to Moses. Remember that Moses, he tried to free the people in Israel from slavery on his own. He tried to, he killed that Egyptian, remember that? He was going to lead the rebellion right there, lead them all out. But what happened? He failed. He failed and he ran for his life into the wilderness and spent 40 years, you know, messing around with sheep, being a shepherd in the wilderness, way far away, thinking, I totally failed, and I'll never, do, I'll never do anything. I'll never help those people. And even when God appeared to him and said, I've chosen you to go back as an 80-year-old man to deliver the Israelites from Egypt, Moses was still hesitant. And he, he made all these excuses, remember? Oh, what if they don't believe me? What if, uh, what if they don't do this? What if Pharaoh uh, is, is, uh, will chase me out of town again? And God, again, repeatedly tried to encourage him, no, I go, it'll be fine, I promise it'll be fine, I'll, I'll be with you and I'll help you. And then Moses, he finally complained, well, I can't, I can't speak, I'm not a very good preacher. So how can you expect me to rally the troops in Egypt when they're so depressed? I can't speak to this people, I can't lead anyone, I'm not a statesman. Here's what God said, he said, who has made man's mouth, Moses? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So now go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and will instruct you what you shall speak. So what was the consolation to Moses? Well, God would be with him, even in speaking. Isn't that what we're concerned about? We're worried we won't speak. We won't speak the right words. Well, God's saying he'll be with us even to speak the way we should speak with one another. Or to Joshua, right? As the the Israelites were on the verge of the promised land uh, with giants in the land, right? These giants in the promised land and people were terribly afraid of them. How did God motivate them and urge them to go anyway? He said to Joshua, "'Have I not commanded you? "'Be strong and courageous. "'Do not be in dread or be dismayed, "'for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go.'" And he said to Gideon, right, the runt of Israel, the small man who called himself the least of the least in Israel, this weak man, not a warrior at all. What did God say to him? He said, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Imagine that, the Lord showing up and saying that to you. O mighty man of valor who's never done anything in his life ever. You're going to go deliver the entire nation. So God was promising to be with him and to the apostles Right? We come into the New Testament, and it's the same. It's the same thing over and over and over. God's saying, I will be with you. How, what's the last verse in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew? It's Christ saying to the apostles, right, men who would have to go into distant countries, die gruesome deaths, uh, leave home and country for Christ and suffer for him. How did he motivate him? What were the words that, that urged these men To do what he commissioned them to do. He said, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's really what you can cling to, the same words. And he said, The end of the age. So, not just those 12 men, but for thousands of years until he returns, he will be with the church and with every believer personally through his spirit. Uh, We know that, of course. And that's what we can cling to, and that's what we need to help other people see like this. And sometimes people will be uh, resistant or reluctant. They won't, they won't just snap out of it overnight. Uh, you'll need to gently uh, try to bring their mind and their heart around to that truth to, to remember. No, no, no. The gospel has actually purchased God's presence with you. God, God can't leave you. He can't leave you. He's always with you because Christ died to reconcile you to God. But then third, we see that there are also weak people in the church. So the unruly, the faint-hearted, but a third group is the weak, and they're different from the faint-hearted in some ways. Uh, These are people that maybe they're not as as at a a low point as the faint-hearted, like the Elijah-type person, but these people just need help. Uh, The idea is a lack of strength, an inability to do what they know they should do, what they know they want to do. If if they could plan their life and just write their own story, they would do the right things. They would, you know, they'd be in their Bible all the time. They would be serving God all the time. They would be uh, freeing themselves of various sins and being living victoriously in many ways, but they are just weak. I mean, they just, when it comes to that moment of crisis, they can't do it by themselves. And it's, um, yeah, it, they don't need to be rebuked. Uh, they, they're not unruly. It, it's, a, it's a weakness. And while there may be some sin involved in it, what, what God would call you to do for such people is to help them. Okay, and that's pretty plain, isn't it? You just help them. You see a child carrying something heavy, and what do you do? You just, how do you help? Well, you go and help them carry it, or you even carry it for them. In the same way, many Christians fall into this condition where they, um, they just need you to be with them, praying praying with them and for them. They just, they can't really get everything. You know, they can't get this huge theology book and just, you know, absorb everything, and they can't read through Leviticus and pull out all these life lessons that you can pull out as a, as a more mature believer, okay, they need someone with them to just help them, to hold their hand as they, as they grow. And there's various aspects of weakness. There's, there's financial weakness that scripture speaks of. Paul said he helped the weak by working for them and even giving to those in need. Uh, there's a physical weakness, but primarily here it's a spiritual and moral weakness. And this is often a new believer, and so if you know a new believer in the church or in your life, you can just assume they're probably somewhere in this condition. They're, they have weakness. Um, you, you shouldn't expect them to just grow by leaps and bounds in isolation. I mean, they need, they need people all, all around them. Uh, help, you could also say cling to them. Cling to them. And that's what an ideal would be in the church, that, that people are devoted to each other. And even when we did that, we signed that, a lot of you signed this uh, commitment letter. That's really part of of this, that, that God wants his people to be committed to each other. And we don't just casually bounce around to different, you know, Bible studies and conferences and things. But no, we actually know people and are involved with them. And we are devoted to them. We're clinging to them and they to us sometimes. Classic example of this kind of help for a weak person is Ruth in the book of Ruth. Remember that her, her mother-in-law uh, was widowed and her sons also died and so this widow was left alone in, in a foreign country. And Ruth was her daughter-in-law and instead of returning and staying you know, in her native country, Ruth said to her mother-in-law these words. She said, Do not press me to forsake you in turning back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Imagine saying that. I promise, wherever you go, I'll be with you. Even until you die, I'll die in the same place. Where you have a burial plot, I'll buy mine right next to yours. You can count on me being there. I mean, that is the Christian attitude toward the weak. And isn't that how Christ treated us? Isn't it how he treated us? Scripture says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, pointing to our total inability to help ourselves. I mean, we were there um, when God first awakened us to our danger, right? The danger of punishment. And just looking at the law and all it requires and how we have just utterly failed to keep the law. And how totally unable we are to to repay God or to earn back our salvation through good works and rituals and moral reforms. We were completely helpless. Uh, We were unwilling even to accept the gospel. But while we were in that condition, Christ died for us. Okay, so there's a connection there. We're imitating Christ as we help the weak. And there's Christians here that need you. I just want you, I want to assure you of that, that in every church there's Christians like this that are just, they're floating and they'll float off the cliff (laughs) if we're not there to, to help them, to help them and to just be, to be there for them. And then finally he says, be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. I mean, we wish that the church was just full of these perfect angel type people, right? That we always said the right thing. We never, ever irritated each other. We, you know, you teach, you tell me to change and I just, boom, I change right away. Or you try to comfort me and I I just say, well, thanks so much for your comfort. I'm better now in this moment. No, even as you're comforting people, sometimes they're going to, they're going to kind of offend you like, hey, get a, don't talk to me like that. Who are you? Don't, you know, I don't want to hear that from you. I want to hear that from someone like older and wiser. Sometimes you'll get that even when someone is bereaved. Uh, they can be sensitive, okay? I mean, you may mean well. You may mean well to try to console them, but they just may not be ready to hear you recite, you know, First Thessalonians chapter 4 to them and expect them to, to snap out of that overnight, Uh, And the unruly. I mean, we really need to be patient with those people. Uh, I mean, I talked about shunning and all that earlier today, but don't don't mistake that for for saying we shouldn't be patient with those people. I mean, we are often unruly with God. (laughs) I mean, how many times has God been patient with you? I mean, how many times has God taught you the same lesson? Or how many times has God forgiven you for the same sin? I mean, some of us, we, there's a couple specific sins that we struggle with, and we're going to God every day sometimes, multiple times a day. Oh, forgive me again. Forgive me. Oh, can I even ask for forgiveness again? It was just a couple hours ago, and here I am again. Uh, God is very, very patient with us. And you can see how Christ was so patient with the, with the disciples, uh, always teaching them, always bearing with their weaknesses, uh, they completely don't get all these lessons he's trying to teach them, and okay, he just keeps keeps living with them, keeps pouring into them. We need to be patient uh, with everyone. We need, in other words, we need to be willing to be offended by each other and be okay with that. We need to be uh, we need to absorb little injuries from each other. We need to be patient with everyone, and so just to 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 see and survey what we've seen in this passage, we see that, well, God expects us, to, he expects his people to be the primary and the front, the front lines for helping other people in the church. So the first response isn't, oh man, you should try someone else. Yeah, you need professional help. You need all this other stuff. I don't want to discount the place of, of other people to help someone. Uh, but really, the church is the first line of defense for, for helping God's people. Right? People here need your encouragement. They need your admonishment, even, sometimes. Uh, they, we all need your patience. <laughs> we all needed your patience. Um, but I can promise you, if you commit to obeying the Lord in these areas, right, that God will use you. You'll be surprised. You'll be surprised how God will use you just as you're you're renewing your mind with scripture and working through your own issues and your own problems, God is now going to use all of those things. He's not going to waste that. He's going to use all that you've learned, right? He's going to use it to minister to other people. And so let's go to God now and ask for his blessing as we seek to do that. Our Father, we thank you for the church. Uh, We thank you so much for your people who are in possession of your spirit, who have new hearts, and who have a heart to serve you and to be useful to you. You know that we're all prone to fear, and we're all prone to fear, and to, just, to, to downplay our ability to bless other people. We pray that you would enable us to be a blessing uh, to those around us, especially to these types of people we've seen in the passage today, the unruly, the faint hearted and the weak. Uh, we pray that your people would be ever more useful and effective in ministering your word to their neighbor. Uh, we pray that you would send us away from here encouraged in the faith and and with a fresh commitment, a fresh zeal to, to abound for the edification of the whole church. And we pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.